but he says usually if you actually look with a with a with an objective and sort of sober eye at the um, at the real nature of governments um, in human history, what they usually do is they engage in usurpation and occupation and various kinds of extraction. So they're taking they they the people who occupy and have the levers of power in the state usually use those levers of power to benefit themselves and their friends and their family, usually at the expense of others. Hello and welcome to another installment of the Essential Scholars podcast. I'm Rosemary Fike, your host, and today I have Jim Otteson joining me once again, and we're going to be talking about the intellectual contributions of David Hume. David Hume is another of those Scottish Enlightenment scholars and a very good friend of Adam Smith, who was the subject of one of our previous podcasts which you should definitely check out <laughs> if you have not already done so. Um, so I'd like to welcome James Otteson back to our podcast. He's the author of our Essential David Hume book. He's also the John T. Ryan Jr. Professor of Business Ethics and Rex and Alice A. Martin, Faculty Director of the Notre Dame Deloitte Center for Ethical Leadership in the Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. He's a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute and a senior scholar at the Fund for American Studies. And we're so happy to have you back to talk to us about David Hume. Thank you so much, Rosie. It's my pleasure and great to be with you. So tell me a bit about who David Hume was. I, as somebody who's much more familiar with the work of Adam Smith than Hume, mm -hmm. uh, those names get brought up in conjunction with one another very frequently. Right. Uh, but I know much less about David Hume's life than I do of some other Scottish Enlightenment scholars. I think that's probably true for most people who know something about economics. They certainly will have heard of Adam Smith. Um, unless you've had some philosophy or studied philosophy, you may not have heard of David Hume. Um, so I think that's uh, very common. But uh, David Hume actually uh, made some real breakthroughs in, um, in what we would now recognize as economic principles of economic reasoning. Um, I think the first thing to mention is that Hume and Smith were friends. Um, in fact, uh, so they lived, um, you know, their lives overlapped. Hume was a little bit older. So Hume was born in 1711 in Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, he died in 1776, also in Edinburgh, 1776, of course, an auspicious year. Uh, many things happened in that year, not just the signing of the American Declaration of Independence, but that's also the year that the Wealth of Nations, that Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations came out. Um, Hume lived long enough to have read The Wealth of Nations, so he was aware of it. But in any case, uh, Hume and Smith were um, were friends throughout most of their adult lifetimes. Um, and um, neither of them was married. They Neither of them ever married. Neither of them ever had children. Um, and so, uh, as you might guess, um, you know, sometimes people wonder, well, what exactly was the nature of their relationship? Um, I mean, the, the real answer is we probably don't really have any idea, uh, but, um, but it is true that uh, both Hume and Smith apparently uh, fell in love and, uh, and may well have asked uh, women to marry them. Um, it's possible that Hume asked as many as three different women to marry him, all of whom said no for various reasons. Uh, so these were among the things that were disappointing to Hume in his life. Um, but uh, so Hume, as I mentioned, lived from 1711 to uh, 1776. Um, and he was part of the period, as was Adam Smith, that we now recognize as we call the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, and Hume was arguably the greatest philosopher of that period, I think probably as a philosopher, even greater than Adam Smith. Um, 
and uh, arguably one of the greatest philosophers or greatest philosophical minds in the Western tradition. Um, so his contributions to philosophy ranged um, were, were quite broad. They ranged from everything from metaphysics to uh, political economy, um, for theory of art and aesthetics, um, to um, histories. Of, he wrote a, a multi-volume history of England. So he ranged quite broadly and was extremely influential. And uh, maybe one last thing I'll mention just to sort of uh, to introduce him. Um, it was David Hume um, and his writing on the notion of causality and the human ability to understand and perceive and know causality. It was uh, Hume's writings on that topic that led to Immanuel Kant, uh, who, read, uh, who read Hume's writings and uh, said, would later say, it was Hume who woke me from my dogmatic slumbers and actually pivoted Kant from being just sort of a run-of-the-mill uh, professor of, of, of philosopher of metaphysics to one of the great philosophers of all time um, in his uh, critiques of pure reason, practical reason, and judgment. Um, and so it was Hume who triggered him in that direction. So his work is really influential, or at least we today recognize its many contributions and how it has influenced other <laughs> thinkers, but how was his re work received in his time? Um, so, so I know him for Treatise on Human Nature. That's probably right. what I know the best of Hume's work. You know, how was his work received when he was alive? Um, it wasn't received very well, is the short answer to that. Um, so, right. So he wrote the Treatise of Human Nature, which is now considered one of the great works in, of Western philosophy. Uh, he wrote it in his late 20s. Um, and it was really an assault on, in many ways, it was an assault on, especially the, the first part of it, um, on um, pretenses to human knowledge. So it laid out an argument about um, what the limits of human knowledge were um, and the implications of those arguments. If, the, if human knowledge was in fact, is in fact as limited as Hume argued it was, then there are all kinds of things that human beings believe they know or claim to know or claim to have knowledge of that on Hume's argument, you don't actually know. These are just speculations. In fact, you know, wild fantasies uses language like that. Um, and what are some of those areas? Well, they might include things like theology. So you can imagine uh, somebody writing in the 18th century. Uh, this was a, and he was, you know, writing in Scotland. It's, this was a Christian time and a Christian place, a Christian era. Um, and for him to uh, be puncturing the pretenses of knowledge that people had about uh, whether they, whether they, uh, knowing whether God existed or if God exists, what can we know about God, et cetera. Hume seemed to think we knew a lot less about that than other people thought. Um, and so, um, so he had, he suffered really two kinds of negative reactions. First, to a lot of his metaphysical stuff, pe most people at the time didn't quite understand the implications of it. So many of them just ignored it. Um, and the few people who did see what the implications were, especially with regard to religion, um, got very upset about that and started calling him a skeptic and maybe even an atheist. Um, so the reactions were either basically nothing or, if anything, negative. So uh, he didn't have the best uh, he didn't have the best responses to his writings. Now, when I hear people say that person's a skeptic, I don't necessarily go in a negative direction. Um, mm. You know, why was that? viewed as as you know an insult to Hume or, or a mark against his character what what's different about being a skeptic uh, now versus what they yeah. bring to Hume that's a good question I think um, in the 18th century and for a lot of um, especially British history 
um, but this is also true for a lot of European history as well. <clears throat> um, it, the idea there was a close connection in people's minds between being a Christian or a particular kind of Christian on the one hand and being moral on the other hand. So if you weren't a particular kind of Christian, then that probably meant you weren't moral. It might also mean you weren't civilized in various ways. You know, maybe you were some kind of barbarian or something or a savage. Um, but in any case, if you were a morally mature person um, and a civilized person, then of course you must also be a certain kind of Christian. Um, and that was certainly the view in the 18th century in Scotland. Um, and so when Hume, when people started to suspect that Hume was a skeptic, um, that meant to many in many people's minds that what that really meant was that he wasn't only um, unsure or not quite so certain about uh, whether we could believe in God or whether we had reason to believe in God's existence, but he probably also wasn't moral either. He probably didn't believe in the rules of morality because people thought that the rules of morality ultimately came from God. They were anchored by God and God's will. If you don't believe in God, then surely you don't believe in morality either. Um, and so that meant that you were some kind of, you know, an untrustworthy person. Um, and, and I think that part of it, at least, has probably changed in the intervening years. Yes. I think most people think today that it's possible to be moral, even if you are not a Christian or a particular kind of Christian. Uh, but that was not the case in the 18th century. Now, I definitely want to get into um, Hume's you know, intellectual response to that because he sets up a moral system that is not dependent on on God. You know, right. said it. We're not we're not really sure if he was atheist or very religious, right? There's some different speculation about that, but he sets up a moral system that doesn't necessarily depend upon uh, being a religious person. So I'm I, I definitely want to get into that, but before we do. I want to talk a little bit about his methodology um, because empiricism and the approach that Hume takes to, to understand the world around him seems very different from what most people were doing in that day. Um, and it seems to have some implications about what good political economy looks like. Yeah, um, so quite right. So Hume was uh, sort of breaking some new ground um, so Hume, like his friend Adam Smith, both of them were very impressed with what um, Isaac Newton had done in the previous century at the end of the 17th century in, um, in observing various things happening in the world and coming up with or generating some rules or principles or laws um, that would capture behavior of things in the heavens and also you know, rocks falling on earth. Um, a few simple rules and laws like the universal law of gravity, uh, gravitation, for example, that could predict and um, account for a lot of different kinds of disparate behavior. Both Hume and Adam Smith um, wondered if that could be applied to human behavior, if we could study human beings empirically in a similar way. So we could look at the behavior of human beings under different kinds of circumstances, different times and places. And could we discern, um, maybe inductively discern, some rules or laws um, that describe or that could even predict their behavior? So um, Hume came up with this phrase. It's a famous phrase. He said, I want to have a science of man. Um, so not just a science of nature or a science of the world, but a science of man, of human beings. Um, and so what Hume thought we could do and what he attempted to do was Let's observe human behavior in lots of different kinds of circumstances. And if we assume, if we don't assume that we already know um, these transcendent or metaphysical principles, and Hume has an argument for why we probably don't have those, but putting that aside, if we just assume we don't and we want to go out and observe human beings, 
uh, human behavior, what kinds of principles could be discerned? And that really was his methodology. So um, just to give you one example, and this may connect with some of your um, interests in political economy that we can come to in a second, but like the, uh, the notion of justice, what is justice exactly? Well, if you want to, you can imagine there are two different ways to figure it, broad ways to come to an, um, a determination of what justice is. One is you could think very hard about it. So we could sit in our office and maybe, or maybe you and I could sit in our offices and we could have a dialogue about it. Um, and we can try to come up with, you know, what the ideal or form of justice is and maybe the necessary and sufficient conditions of justice in itself. That's one way to do it. Um, Hume called that an a priori way. So that was before experience. This was just trying to use the principles of pure reason, the way you might in pure mathematics or something. That's one way to think about justice. Another way to think about justice is, well, let's go and look at how different human communities and different human beings have actually used the term justice or the equivalent of it in their languages and see what role this notion of justice has played in their communities. That was the, the method that Hume wanted to use. So Hume um, looked around and noticed that people use terms like justice, but they refer to all different kinds of things. Um, and he thought that what we might be able to do is to figure out what conceptions of justice actually are better than others based on actually looking to see what works, what allow human societies to flourish, what allow human beings to flourish. Maybe we can come to a conception of justice based on that. And in fact, that's what Hume thinks we can do. Um, and so ultimately for Hume, the, the principle of justice or the nature of justice or the virtue, if you like, of justice is ultimately going to be related to utility, to flourishing, to whether it allows human being, human communities to survive and flourish or human beings to survive and flourish, not whether it's comport, it comports with some a priori conception. And so in your discussion in chapter three, talking about justice, conflict, scarcity, um, you talk a lot about the relationship between justice um, and its, its connection to, to property and, and right. property rights. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, Hume is a fascinating person. You know, the, the methodology that he uses might seem pretty familiar to us today. If you read it today, you might think it's not too revolutionary. But, you know, in the 18th century, people weren't really talking about justice like this or things like justice. They were trying to imagine you know, what would God, assuming God exists, what would God want for us to, um, uh, for human beings and human societies, what would he want for them in order to survive and flourish? Um, and maybe would you would develop some conception of natural law that um, was dependent on or created by God that entails certain kinds of natural rights. None of that is what Hume does. Um, instead, what Hume does as he goes, and as I mentioned a second ago, um, looks at actual, what he thinks anyway, what actual human beings are like, what the human condition is, and looks for patterns to describe it. Um, and in particular, and this will relate to private property and his conception of justice, in particular, he thinks that there are some constants about human nature. Um, and one of them is that we tend to be self-interested and have limited benevolence. So Hume says it just seems to be a fact of human nature that everybody is self-interested. We all care about our own, um, our own survival, our own benefit, et cetera. Um, but it's also true that we have benevolence towards others, but it's limited. So, in fact, you know, the further away someone is from us or the less known someone is to us, the less naturally benevolent we're going to feel towards that person. So there's one important fact he thinks about human nature. We tend to be self-interested and have limited benevolence. And a second fact that he thinks about the human condition, as it were, is scarcity of resources. We all want more than we have. No matter how much you have, you want more 
Um, and we can't all have everything we want because the resources in the world are scarce. And this fact leads to conflict because you're different from me. There are different things you might want to do with our limited resources than what I might want to do, which leads to conflict. So if you put those two facts together, self-interested and limited benevolence on the one hand and scarcity of resources on the other, these then act as kind of anchors for Hume's political economy. He says, if we want to have a system of political economy that has goals that we share, whatever those are, maybe peace and prosperity and flourishing, okay, you got to take those two things into account. And if you ignore those things or try to set up a system of political economy that will assume that you can change those things or that those things won't be true, then it's basically a non-starter for Hume um, and not one that would actually apply or actually help human beings. So we have to treat people as they actually appear to be in reality. That's <laughs> revolutionary idea that seems to just be common sense. Yes, exactly. So one of the interesting things there is we've got scarcity and, and one of the things that Hume talks about, you know, how we can kind of conquer scarcity or kind of overcome scarcity is to kind of live in society, right? Sure. Working with other people can help us overcome this scarcity, but at the same time, it working and interacting with other people can bring us into conflict. Um, so how can we achieve improvements in the human condition um, and grapple with this potential for conflict? How, how do we solve that? Yeah. Um, so Hume thinks that the, that um, the way that human beings have been able to figure out to begin to reduce conflict, not get rid of it, but just reduce conflict, reduce violence. So he thinks that violence and conflict, those are among the chief obstacles to human flourishing or human prosperity. They cause a lot of misery in human life. Um, the way that human beings have figured out that they can reduce those things is by having property rights. <laughs> so uh, Hume doesn't think that this is something necessary that we, you know, we came to a priori, like some kind of mathematical deduction from something, even though we might tell ourselves that after the fact, and maybe, you know, telling a story like that might help enforce these rules psychologically in our minds. If we think they're God's rules, then maybe we're more likely to follow them. But Hume, as an empiricist, um, thinks that, no, what human beings did was they just tried a bunch of different things. They figured out um, some of them, you know, imperfectly, but to greater extents than others in some places, that respecting property rights enables people on the one hand to cooperate um, to mutual benefit rather than just one party cooperating at the expense of another. They can cooperate to mutual benefit um, and it leads to peace um, because now I have a realm that is mine, you have a realm that is yours and we aren't necessarily jealous of each other's and we aren't gonna fight over it if we, don't, uh, if we have some understanding that well, what you have is yours and I don't just have the right to take it. Um, so what this leads Hume to conclude, what he thinks is that um, in order for human beings to have flourishing communities, prosperous communities, what they should have is private property rights. Um, they should, each human being should have, you know, you have your possess whatever your possessions are, they should be recognized as yours. And um, no one else should be able to take it from you without your consent and under the conditions that you agree to. Um, and he thought that this, it, to the degree that that, to the extent that that applied to more and more people in society, uh, maybe even one day so that, you know, the lowest members of society could say no even to the king, uh, you know, the king, even the king could had to ask permission to take people's property. 
what that would do is enable people to live in cooperative community with one another and would give them a great incentive to um, engage in mutually voluntary and mutually beneficial transactions that would lead to increasing prosperity. So how do property rights emerge, right? How do, how do I know something is mine, right? It's nice to say what's yours is yours, what's mine yeah. is mine. You, I need to give you consent. You need to give me consent. But how does something become mine in the first place? Uh, good question. So, so Hume has has uh, several rules of property that he comes up with. But what's and I'll and I'll mention them. But uh, what's interesting about them is he thinks we arrived at all of them basically experimentally. We just sort of happened upon them, um, and the and their nature and extent are both subject to um, empirical verification and you know continuance. We we hang on to them only as long as they continue to be useful to us. So they're rule they're things like the rules of what he calls occupation. Um, so if you live on a, per, on a specific plot of land or you and your family or you and your community are on a certain plot of land for a certain length of time, long enough, then Hume says, well, you come to own it by what he calls occupation. So this isn't, doesn't necessarily have to be any official act of, you know, the government says you now own it. Rather, he thinks it's just reflected in our behavior. You act on that land as if you own it. We who don't own it respect it and inter interact with you as if you own it as well. And so the rules of what constitutes ownership, what you're allowed to do, what you may do, what you and I may do in partnership with it, or if I work on some of the land, et cetera, all that arises from various kinds of interactions and exchanges between us where we try various things that lead to our mutual benefit. Um, all of it is empirical. All of it is just sort of an evolutionary process of trying things out, according to Hume. Uh, but that's one way you come to own it. You just occupy it. Um, you, there are there are several other ways he mentions. Uh, prescription, you know, if you just have it for a long, you have something in your possession for a long period of time, everybody recognizes you owns it, you own it, that means you own it. So that's all there is to it. There's no additional metaphysical or uh, theological uh, aspect to it. You have something for a long time. We all recognize you as owning it. You recognize yourself as owning it. That means you own it. Etc. I mean, and there are several others to uh, to succession is one of them. If you have something, everybody recognizes that that house is yours or that that land is yours. Um, you die and you give it to your children. We recognize your children is now owning it. That's a, what he calls a right of succession. Um, so again, these aren't things that are set um, by metaphysical principle or by God or government or something. Um, it's just. Um, it arises from human behavior and allows more productive, cooperative human interaction. So that is in large, largely in contrast to kind of the, the natural rights arguments that were dominant in, in Hume's day. What's interesting is Hume's way of viewing property might be more convincing to people now than the natural <laughs> rights view. <laughs> Uh, Hume was yeah. just way too ahead of his time. It <laughs> he, he was ahead of his time. And you're right, that it, that is very different. So, uh, but what, one little, uh, if I may, just one yeah. little, um, you know, sort of fine-tuned part of that for Hume. Hume actually raises and him, raises the question to himself, well, should we call these natural rights? Um, you know, does that mean that justice is a natural virtue in some way? Um, and Hume says, well, it depends on what you mean by natural. If by natural you mean human beings constructed the way they are, who find themselves in circumstances like those on earth, they will almost inevitably come up with these kinds of rules, then it's natural. If that's what you mean by natural, then yes, it's natural. 
Um, if on the other hand, what you mean by natural is that God wrote them into the fabric of the universe and our job is to apprehend them with a reason, a priori reason, then no, that's not what he means by natural. So he really, I mean, it's really sort of a, a, a de-elevation, de-escalation of human, uh, you know, human hubris, if you like. Um, we think we're so special. We think we know so much. We think we can perceive to the inner nature of everything. We understand humans saying, no, basically we're just experimenters. We're kind of bumbling innovators. We try stuff. We're just trying to get along in this world. Most of what we try fails. Occasionally we, fi we find something that succeeds. And if we uh, repeat that often enough, it can become a convention and maybe then a rule. And what do you know, private property is one of these things we figured out at some point and look how beneficial it is. So we really ought to try to stick to that one and uh, continue to emphasize it, not because necessarily God wants us to, but because look at all the good consequences it has for us. So would you say Hume in, in determining whether a rule is a morally good rule, is he more of a consequentialist? Yes, I would say that. Yeah. Um, and that's another reason why many people in the 18th century and many people today, too, um, are a little wary of Hume, um, because if they have worries about consequentialism, um, they're going to apply that to Hume as well. And, and, and you can just think of it sort of in general. Um, if you're if you're a pure consequentialist. So if you know, if you think that a, that a certain rule of behavior or a certain policy or, um, can be justified only if it leads to good consequences, um, well, that sounds like it could justify an awful lot of things that you would not, you'd not be very happy about. You know, what if enslaving 5% of the population leads to an overall net increase in benefit? Would that justify it somehow? Well, I mean, you sure want to say, I would certainly want to say, I assume you would do. No, <laughs> that wouldn't absolutely not justify that. But if you're a pure consequentialist, if consequences are the only thing that matter to you, then it seems to open you up to those kinds of worries. Um, Hume, I don't think, is entirely open to exactly that kind of uh, concern, but I think that was one of the things that people were nervous about then and uh, and now about this general approach to moral philosophy called consequentialism. Yeah, he's trying to straddle both of those, right, by calling the property rights a form of natural rights, so they are a first principle. Right. They just also so happen to provide uh, beneficial consequences. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I would say maybe one way to put this is uh, so much later, um, Nobel laureate economist James Buchanan, um, uh, one of his uh, phrases that I like that he, he talks about relatively absolute absolutes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, absolute principles that aren't exactly absolute, but they're relatively absolute. Um, and I think that's sort of like the kind of view that, Smith, uh, that uh, Hume takes towards uh, justice and property. That yeah, you know the notion of private property could can be overridden, um, but the but it has to be a pretty extraordinary case. And the strong default is you respect rules of private property because it has such benefit beneficial consequences. So he does talk about how the state's not necessary to create and enforce these rules. So how does the government or the state emerge? How does it originate? And you know, what's the purpose of it? If we can embed these property rights into our social norms, what is the purpose of the state? Uh, good question. So, um, so Hume kind of tells two different stories of the state. Um, one is a, a story of what role he thinks the state should play or what beneficial role it could play given you know the facts of human nature as he understands them 
Um, and the other story he tells about the state is uh, sort of his recounting of the actual historical origins of the state and what the state actually does, as opposed to what it should do. And as you might guess, they're two very different stories. Um, the but the first one, just briefly, the first one about what he thinks the state could do is um, is effectively enforce the rules of justice and private property. So you know, he what he what he suggests is that you know he asks himself the question: Well, if you know the rules of justice and private property are so beneficial as he's claimed they are, why wouldn't everybody follow them all the time? Why wouldn't everybody recognize the benefit of them? Um, and what he introduces is a version of what we might today think of as a kind of collective action problem. Well, you know, what's beneficial for the group, um, you know, it's also beneficial for me as an individual if everybody else in the group follow the, follows those rules. But there may be times when it benefits me even more to um, accept myself, um, give myself an exception to the rules that I want everybody else to follow. Um, in other words, you know, maybe I'm a thief and it's really good for me if everybody in society, if nobody in society steals except me. <laughs> then it benefits me from being in this society when nobody steals from me and by, by stealing at the same time. So Hume says that there are these, that we do suffer, human beings do suffer, he thinks, from what he calls short-sightedness. So we think, oh, well, my little violation of the rule won't lead to a complete collapse, so I'll just steal this little bit, and, uh, and everybody will still respect the rules of private property and justice in society. But then lots of people start thinking that, and then pretty soon you have this collective action problem where you know the whole thing can collapse. So a role for the state can be, and the role for the state that Hume thinks would be the, the right role for the government, um, would be to enforce the rules of property and justice and punish people who engage in this short-sighted exception making. Um, so to the extent possible, keep all of us following the rules that actually will benefit all of us, that will in fact benefit all of us in the future. That's the right role for the state, according to him. Um, but uh, alas, he says, if you look historically, that's not what governments actually do. Um, largely what governments do, despite, he says, these kinds of myths and, that we tell ourselves about what our governments do. You know, we have these kind of romantic visions of our own governments. But he says, usually, if you actually look with, a, with, a, with an objective and sort of sober eye at the, um, at the real nature of governments um, in human history, what they usually do is they engage in usurpation and occupation and various kinds of extraction. So they're taking, they, they, the people who occupy and have the levers of power in the state usually use those levers of power to benefit themselves and their friends and their family, usually at the expense of others. Um, so the actual practice of government is very different, he thinks, from the, um, from the way the government ought to behave given what he thinks are the facts of the human condition. And he's also challenging the social contract theory of government, which once again was pretty popular in his day. You know, as we're talking, he's he's challenging all kinds <laughs> of dominant views while yeah. he's alive. Um, no wonder people weren't too warm on his ideas when, yeah. when he was publishing. Yeah, he upset a lot of apple carts, didn't he? Yeah, he, uh, he, yeah, he did. You're right. He went after a lot of things. So, yeah, the, you know, this notion of the original contracts, so we actually had two uh, two reasons uh, or two sort of ways that he opposed this. One was he said, it's just historically speaking, a myth. There actually wasn't any time that anybody signed any kind of contract. Um, you know, that where, because if you think about what contracts are, well, contracts are signed by, you know, voluntarily by peer parties um, and they have terms of agreement and also terms of 
a, a breach, you know, if you breach the contract, then this is what we do. Or if I breach the contract, then this is what we do. This is what contracts are. And, and, and all the stipulations and elements of them are public and everybody knows what they are. When in history has that ever happened between rulers and the ruled, he says, never. So as a matter of historical fact, this is just a myth. Um, but the other part of it, he says, so that's one uh, claim he makes. But the other part of it, he says, is it's a really important myth for the rulers because they really want to be able to tell, to encourage people or get people to believe that you have an obligation to obey. So he thinks that this notion of the, of the original contract or the original compact um, is um, it, that philosophically, but really also psychologically serves as a means through which we get people to believe that they should obey their rulers, that they should obey, not just that they have to, or that if they don't, they'll be punished, but that they really ought to, to be a good person, you really should obey your rulers. And that Hume thinks is actually extremely important for serving the rule, the, the interests of the rulers, because as he says, you know, after all, a king can't physically coerce literally everybody in his country. Um, you know, he can only physically coerce a person or, you know, one or two people. So how is it that a king and maybe the, the few king's ministers and a relatively small proportion of the, the army that, you know, that the king has uh, is commanding, how can they get and keep in, uh, in, um, in obey, uh, obedience an entire country? And he says, really by convincing people that they ought to behave. So it's really on the basis of opinion. You listen to the government official because you think you should obey. In other words, it's your opinion. And that's really the purpose, he thinks, of that the social compact theory serves. It's to give people a reason to believe that they should obey, even if there isn't somebody looking over their shoulder all the time and physically forcing them to obey. So one of the things he also challenges is this idea that well, maybe I didn't sign a contract with the state, right? But I still live here. So yeah. I must be kind of <laughs> implicitly giving my consent to the rules because I haven't left. What's Hume's challenge to that? Yeah, it's a, uh, he, he has a, 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 fa a somewhat famous, but al almost a humorous uh, response to that. He says, um, I mean, the philosophical point is he says, that's too high of an expectation um, to make. So it requires too much for people to actually say no. So if you imagine that, you know, suppose we had a democracy, um, suppose, you know, we had two, um, we have two candidates for president and, you know, you support one candidate and I support the other candidate. And suppose, you know, I, su I actively support my candidate and I, you know, maybe I take part in rallies or have signs or whatever, and I actively oppose your candidate. So I do what I can to oppose your candidate. Um, and then let's suppose that the election happens, your candidate wins, my candidate loses. Um, and Hume says, now the theory is, or the claim is that I must obey um, basically no matter what I did. So if I voted for the candidate, I have to obey the candidate. If I voted against the candidate, I still have to obey the candidate. If I didn't vote at all, I still have to obey because either I should have participated if I wanted to, or if I didn't, I have no right to say no. <laughs> so no matter what you do, so Hume is saying, really, your theory is I have to obey no matter what. Um, and he says that's akin to saying, and here's his uh, somewhat famous analogy, that's like saying um, you know, that uh, somebody was in a bar, in a pub drinking, and he got a little too drunk at, uh, in the pub, and he wakes up the next morning and he's on a merchant ship on his way to China. Um, and, they, and he's told, well, look, while you were drunk, you said it was okay that you wanted to go for a ride on our ship, and we got you to sign this contract here, and now that you're, um, now that you're sober, 
you're actually on your way to China. And if you say, well, wait a minute, I don't want to be, I don't know what happened. I don't even remember it. I don't want to be on this ship. They say, oh, okay, you have a free choice. You can jump into the ocean and perish. <laughs> um, or you can, be, you can be subject to our rules. He says, that's really what it's like to tell somebody, well, if you don't like what your country does, you can leave it. Because for most people, they can't really leave. They don't have the monetary means. They don't have the cultural means. They don't speak other languages. Other countries probably wouldn't accept them. It's such a high bar that the idea that, well, you could just leave um, seems ridiculous. You happen to be born here. I have as much right as you do if you happen to be born here. Why do you have a right to oppress me or make me follow your rules as opposed to my own, et cetera? And... Yeah, I think I really hope we get into more conversation in our second uh, session uh, to talk about how Hume's ideas uh, have some social justice implications. Mm. Right? It seems like he, more than a lot of other classical liberal scholars, did have a bit of an eye towards kind of social justice issues. So I, I do want to get into that in the second part. Okay. Um, but... In order to, you know, we want to facilitate these rules of justice, you know, preventing people from predating upon each other, all of this so that we can kind of cooperate and develop this commercial society, right? right? That's kind of the goal. So what are, what are the benefits of the commercial society? Because Hume doesn't just talk about material benefits. He does talk about the material benefits. But he also talks about some moral benefits uh, that the, the commercial society can provide. So if you could just talk a little bit about his view of commerce. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, all that stuff about property that we've been talking about, property and justice, uh, for Hume, that, that you're right, that, that implies a kind of commercial society. Um, so uh, for Hume, he was, he was quite a supporter of an open commercial society. One of the, the most uh, um, strong and one of the strongest supporters um, as much, if not more, than um, Hugh, uh, than uh, Adam Smith, who's known uh, much more for that now. Uh, but Hume was quite an um, uh, an advocate of the commercial society. For you're right, for a couple of reasons. So on the one hand, there were the the economic claims that he was making, where um, you respect private property, you allow for open trade. That's something else that uh, Hume argued for, for um, uh, allowing for open trade rules. Maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that a little bit more, but. Um, when you allow those things to happen, prosperity increases. People generate prosperity. They um, they look for and find ways to meet ever more of their needs and their wants. So they generate more goods and services in society, which is the which is the definition of increasing economic prosperity. Um, so that's one strong argument for Hume about why we should have a commercial society. But it's not the only argument. He has an entirely other set of uh, arguments. Um, that he calls moral arguments, um, and that is those are a couple, those go in a couple of different ways. But I'll just mention uh, two. Um, one is uh, he thinks that in a commercial society, people's morals <laughs> will improve. They won't get worse; they'll be better. And what he means by that is, if you think about, um, you know, if, if you're if you're living in a commercial society where people's private property is protected, um, the only way you're going to be able to get things that you want. Um, is by entering into cooperative relationships with other people. Um, if people's private property is protected, then that means they can say no thank you to you if they don't want um, if they don't want to partner with you or trade with you or sell to you, et cetera. If they can say no to you, then that means you have to think about them. What Hume argues is that that's going to reduce 
various kinds of antagonisms we all we seem otherwise to have towards other human beings. I mean, so suppose I don't like your religion. Uh, under other circumstances, maybe we would come to blows. We might even kill each other over that. Um, but if I view you not as an enemy like that, but rather as an opportunity to my own benefit, then yeah, maybe I still don't like your religion, but I want to trade with you. <laughs> So it reduces the fervor of our antagonisms. And that's everything from religious antagonisms to nationalistic to xenophobic um, uh, antagonisms. All of these things will reduce. Um, so that's one, what he calls sort of moral way. It's a prediction he makes. And that's a, an important part of it. And we can think about that. You know, was he right? Are people actually more polite and more open and more tolerant towards others in commercial societies or market-based economies than they are in closed economies or closed societies? Um, but the other way that uh, Hume thought that having a commercial society, the other sort of moral, what he called moral benefit, um, was that it would lead to increasing happiness. And that's not just in having our goods and you know, more goods and services, so having our needs, um, our needs and wants satisfied. Um, but he also thought it would be in commercial societies where you would get things like increasing production of the arts. You would get learning. Um, you would get universities. You would get plays and music and these things he thought enriched the soul. Um, and these things are luxuries. So they are things that you can't afford to have if everybody's you know, at starvation levels. You only have those things as, um, as wealth and prosperity increases. But he thought those things actually enriched our souls and made us more complete human beings. And he thought of this as a moral benefit to a commercial society, that it increased the resources with which we could engage in all of these things that really fill out a life, a rich life of meaning and purpose. Did he think that a commercial society was necessary in order to have those things? Um, good question. And I'm going to punt a little bit. It's not exactly clear, but I would say if I, you know, he probably would have said yes, because, but, uh, you know, I would, I would just qualify it on the sense that, you know, he considered himself an empiricist and he's looking around at the world and he sees a very strong correlation. I think that's what he would say to the extent that your society is more commercially oriented, is more open to other societies, engages in trade, then the, these other benefits ensue. If it's not those things, you don't have those benefits. So is it necessary? I don't know, but it sure looks like it. Well, that seems like a good place to leave it there for today. Um, and when we come back in a couple of weeks in our next episode, we're going to talk a bit more about Hume's ideas and how they apply in our modern lives today. Thank you so much for joining us again. And I look forward to continuing the chat. Great. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and head over to essentialscholars.org to learn more. See you next time. Thank you.